Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Recorded live. If you're hearing the sound of my voice right now, that's because you're either in a chat room and you are listening live or you've happened upon a pre-edit copy of the Scoob Obsessed Netcast. Come back in a few hours and we will have an edited version already for you. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 288 is recorded live June 30th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where we are certainly getting some diving in. And now I say we, it's not me included. That means it's Mac and Joining us this week actually is Mac. How you doing today, Mac? I'm doing pretty good. And you're right. I just got back from diving. Uh, I'm jealous. I'm, I guess I have to live diving through you until I can fit it in my schedule. Well, the opportunities are out there, so you just got to look around a little bit. Yeah. Well, like, I'm, I'm still back on. I got to get my equipment fixed. Got to go get some... I, I know it must be really difficult to find a high-pressure hose. I have one at the house if you need one that bad. <laughs> I need to go buy one. I think I think probably half the hoses I've got on, I've probably borrowed from you. Probably not, but we'll get you a high-pressure one. <laughs> uh, I, and duct tape works wonders. Well, that's what I was thinking about. Jim Cleaning and I, over this last week when we were talking, I was I – was, talking about the duct tape options. <laughs> well, I've seen that stuff that you can put on screens after oh. you put them in your boat, you know, and then you can still float. Do you just spray it on? Yeah. You just spray that sucker on. Yeah. Well, we've talked about for dry suit repair, that uh, dip that they use on uh, tool handles. Uh, maybe I could do the same thing with a hose. I bet that would be all sorts of mess underwater. I bet it would just, it would like bubble and burst. Well, what it would probably do is you'd probably float up because you'd have a huge bubble <laughs> and then to be dragging you to the surface and you'd be fighting to get down. Yeah, these are all things you probably shouldn't do with safety equipment. Well, let's go ahead and get right on into the news. We have a few articles this week, a little bit of a all over the place. And our favorite little critter is going to be joining the world of ISIS, as I see. Lionfish is invading, is invading the Mediterranean Sea. Must be removed preferably tomorrow, says an expert. Less than two dozen lionfish have been discovered in the Mediterranean Sea, but they may need to be fished out immediately if the echo ecosystem is to be preserved, a marine biologist said. We know they're pairing up in Cyprus right now. They need to be removed urgently, Jason Hall Spence said over the phone. It has to happen preferably tomorrow. The lionfish probably slipped in from the Red Sea with its widening of the Suez Canal. 
Hal Spencer said. Also, the Mediterranean Sea is getting warmer, making it possible for tropical species like lionfish to survive. And as in the Caribbean years ago, overfishing means the sea lacks predators capable of stemming the lionfish population. Lionfish native to the Indo-Pacific region lack natural predators in the Mediterranean. They can spread extremely fast, decimate the rich biodiversity of sea. They're not whistling Dixie on that one. If you've got two dozen, you've got potential for thousands in a very, very short period of time. Yeah, they have. Do you see the little animated map they have uh, below? And it starts in about 1995, showing the lionfish where they are. Yes. And you hit about 2006, and it is all over with. <laughs> oh, you take a look at the map for when Quaggas came in, and then you look at the map when the, uh, well, I should say the zebras came in, then look at the Quaggas, and then in two years, the Quaggas did what the zebras did in 10. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Once once I start. It doesn't take them long, so I... I uh, wonder what they're going to be able to do. Well, if they know they've got them out there, they should put a bounty on them because then people will be out there actively looking for them yeah, and they, it'd be worth putting a bounty on them. They said in total they counted 24 sightings, at least 19 lionfish along the coast of Cyprus. And if they saw them, if they didn't kill them then, they're just, yeah. They should have sent out like a posse. The lionfish posse should have gone out right then and taken care of them. Because that 19 in two weeks could be 1,000. Yeah, I don't know what the gestation period is for those, but it ain't long. Since 2009, Florida has removed 16,000 lionfish. And there's probably more today than there was when they started that. I'm sure. And the footnote, they said, is they do taste delicious. Well, we talked about that. We still haven't had anybody send us any. Yeah, what's that about? <laughs> uh, Starfish are starballing. They say that may hold a clue to the mystery of mass strandings. Scientists believe they may have discovered the reason why common starfish are prone to mass beach strandings during strong winds and tide conditions. Researchers at Plymouth University have observed the species rolling along the seabed with arms curled into a spheroid shape. Phenomenon is termed starballing. Not yet known whether technique is a deliberate one that helps some otherwise slow-moving species to change their location, but some recorded raising a single arm to the water column prior to moving as if to test the conditions. You just kind of hold your arm up. You go, eh, this is about right. Well, you know, you stick your arm out of the car, right? Yeah, you could, you kind of do that little flap thing. You get the air coming in. Common starfish is a naturally slow mover, traveling no more than 67 centimeters per minute. With its thousands of tube feet navigating the terrain as it looks for food, its larvae have therefore long been considered the reason the species is so widespread through the North Atlantic. But this newly observed phenomenon of starballing might both shed further light on their distribution, explain how mass strandings occur. Hmm. It kind of makes sense. You know, if, you, if you're starballing and the, you get blown up on the shore, that would be a mass stranding. 
it, it makes much more sense than at 67 centimeters an hour them all crawling onto the beach. They said at one point, 30% of the starfish in the area were observed to be rolling. Wow. I never knew they could do that. I, I didn't either. They, and they said that usually happens in such poor conditions that it's, it's not normally observed. It's uh, I don't know if they say in this article or another one, but it was because they had an ROV out there that they even caught it. Huh. So starballing. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Keep those things rolling. It almost sounds like something that you'd uh, see the paparazzi's trying to photograph. <laughs> uh, and we just have a little bit. Out that they're having some kind of spastic reaction based on the yeah. water temperature. And... Oh, it's too warm. It's too cold. Yeah. I, I do the same thing. I ball up. Not when it's too warm, when it's too freaking cold. <laughs> and then this next article, talking about sustainable downbeach, recycling monofilament live line saves marine life. And even at you know, that little item, we've seen that there at Merrimont. There's one right there just like that one. Yeah, it is cool. So what they're doing in the articles, they show these, it's like a PVC pipe that has a little elbow on the end, a cap on the other end. And it's for when you, if you've got any extra filament that you've taken out, instead of just throwing it in the water, because what's going to happen when you throw that filament in the water, it goes down the bottom, traps stuff, and it continues fishing. So a lot of marine life will get caught in that filament. And it doesn't really break down readily. And when it does, you probably don't want it to by that point. Uh, so what they're doing is they're installing these tubes all over. And like you said, we haven't met Merrimont. I think it's an excellent idea. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, they, they talk about a lot of the trash at some of the beaches and stuff. You notice you don't have any trash cans at the beaches. And at Merrimont, you know, we do have two trash cans, and they get used a lot. They do. And I think that's why we don't have as much crap around the pier and stuff, because They've got facilities for most of the people who are conscientious will actually use them. I see trash cans usually at the parking lots that are feeding the beaches, but you're right. You don't see them on the beaches that often. And I think it's a labor thing. It just takes effort for the beaches to have to maintain it. And uh, I, I do know when I've worked security for like a Venetian festival or the fireworks on the 4th of July, uh, they'll put out, these cardboard boxes about the size of a refrigerator box. And those will be full within a couple hours. It doesn't right, take and that's the problem there. I mean, I still go down to the beach and try to do a little detecting after the, the party times. Mm-hmm. And again, if you had more boxes, you'd have less trash on the, on the ground. It's true. If you, and you see that even in, uh, you know, restaurants and grocery stores or big box retailers. The ones that put trash cans in their parking lots have less trash. And I, and I know the reason they don't want to do it is just because of the, the labor and the cost they have to pay to have that trash hauled away. Right. And a lot of places that had the big dumpsters, people bring their trash from home and yeah. put it in the dumpster. Well, and that's what happens is that trash, uh, if you're not in an area where you've got municipal trash pickup that's mandatory, then you're paying for it. 
And all of a sudden, you see a mattress in there. It's like, excuse me? Yeah, mattress. A tire. Well, that's what uh, we used to see a lot of these uh, Goodwill boxes, donation yeah. boxes around. Yeah. And that's what Goodwill used to complain about, is that half the stuff in there was literally trash. They yeah. said pe- stuff from people's kitchens, thrown in a trash bag, and it'd be thrown in the box, because yeah. people just pull up and get rid of it. We won't talk about the low-life characters that do that, though. I'm not going to call anybody names. Not not right now. Maybe right. later. Later. <laughs> you know, have, 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 have a few more drinks. We'll we'll be we'll we'll spread some names around. Yeah. Women's Dive Day returns to La Jolla Shores. Patty has been uh, pushing this concept of uh, these Women Dive Day for for quite a while now. Um, and they and they go on in the article to talk about how. Scuba diving traditionally been a male-dominated sport, and they say part of it was because of the big, heavy suits. The sports was seen as dangerous. Uh, only big, bulky Navy men could get the gear on and go for it. Uh, now, do you agree with that? Do you think that's why it was that way? I'm not sure, but um, you see this in a lot of other sports. I've got to go to skydiving because they have what's called SIS, Sisters in Skydiving, and because it was a male-dominated sport. And it's beginning not to be as much. There's a lot more gals, a lot more women involved. And part of it's because they have their own groups now, and they support each other that they didn't have before. I think so. I think that helped. you got to feel comfortable in it. If you don't feel like you're going to get supported or uh, get the attention or lack of attention, whichever way you want, that makes you feel comfortable, then you're not going to be in, involved in it. Oh, uh, it's like last year with Marybeth and them, we actually had – Women coming out because it's diving with other women, not with some guys. Yeah, well, I think it's it's in other groups I belong to, uh, like my kids' robotic team. That has always been forty to sixty percent women on the team, and well, you'll go to competitions, and there are teams that don't have a single woman on them or a girl, and they'll always ask us, "How do you get so many on?" It just it's always been that way. So I think. You know, people want to be with other people they can identify with and feel comfortable. So if you just start out with having both genders involved, then it goes a little bit smoother. Well, I'm surprised they say here that it's 65% men, 35% women. I've not noticed that. That, That's a good percentage. You know, that's one out of three. Well, and it depends on what the numbers. Is it going off certifications? Is it going on try-and dives, snorkeling? Uh, when you when you talk to a lot of couples who are going to try it, it's usually both. You know, they they're on a wedding, a honeymoon, something, and they're both going to go try it, and they're going to the Caribbean. I do. How, how many stay at stay at it? Well, and that's what we goes back to our discussion on whether somebody's just a seasonal fair weather diver or are they a truly an active diver? And I think a lot of people are just fair weather. So I think if you include the fair weather in there, not saying that women are going to be more fair weather than men, uh, but it, it's going to be a little bit higher or equal percentages uh, up up here in Michigan. I, I don't know is it the coldness because that's one thing. Whenever I'm talking to to women about diving up here, they're like, ah, it's got to be cold. I, I think that might be it because a lot of people don't dive because it is cold up here. 
or colder than they're normally used to. Well, I was just, you know, and of course this is somebody trying to sell me something, but the first thing when a, a salesman gets contact with you on anything now is they look you up in LinkedIn. So anytime anybody looks up my LinkedIn profile, they see scuba diving. So all sales calls uh, where the salesman has done any amount of research instantly try and talk about diving. So the salesman this week uh, was, was mentioning he saw my profile, and he's in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. He calls himself an active diver, and his, his comment to me was like, what, you dive in the Great Lakes? There's diving there? <laughs> and the guy lives in Wisconsin. Uh, and I think that's a common thing. Well, and it goes back to the story of Jim Kleeman and I. We didn't, I mean, we knew that there was diving on the Great Lakes, but we thought it was like some special blessed charter that had to come out and, and bring you. Uh, we just didn't realize if you could find a puddle, you could go in. So maybe it's an education, a little bit more education. Katie Thompson, marketing director for the Professional Association of Diving Instructors, or PADI, said the ratio of male-to-female divers is 65% men to 35% women. We thought we could break down these barriers and create a community of women in diving balance out there a little bit, and we've created a day to get people together. She added, the sport in general can be intimidating. It requires an unfamiliar environment that you have to be trained in. Heavy gear has historically been a guy thing. We're trying to show there are many... There are so many women of all ages and ability to dispel the myth that it takes to be a diver by showing demographics through events like this. There's a lot of awareness. Instead, there are preconceived notions. At its inaugural event, different communities hosted different gatherings. Some held dives, some held beach parties and barbecues. At 2015 La Jolla Shores event, unexpected storm dampened attendance. We had 65 RSVPs, but it was so nasty storms, some people canceled. Only about 35 showed up. This year we're hoping to have 60 to 75 people attend worldwide. There should have a goal of 500 localized events. Hopefully they do, like we've said many times before. The more, the merrier. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I have to say that uh, is, this is probably the most uh, most balanced the mud club has been with female divers. Yes. I mean, we've always had females who can dive, but they weren't diving. Correct. At least since I've been a member. I know there's a lot who come to the meetings and who are certified, but I just I don't typically see them diving. No, uh, the general time they would get in the water is up in Sheboygan, up in the flats. Yeah. And generally they're doing that because they're helping bring gear in and solid stuff, whatever we bring up, they come out there and give a hand, which was greatly appreciated. Yeah. Now, I know your daughter, though, when she was young, did yes. anybody else get their kids diving, their female daughters diving? Uh, no, actually, Cat was the only gal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I sort of, I think she was about 14 when she did her New Year's ice dive with me. When you broke her thermostat? That's what she said. My thermostat's broken forever. I mean, <laughs> we had a dry suit, but it leaked. 
And I didn't appreciate it until I went back and looked at some of the video and uh, pictures. And it's like, she was quite a trooper to, to yeah. do that. And that was in the river. I think, I think there are certain things 14-year-old girls are, can be very tough with. But she didn't, like, so her 15th birthday, she didn't come back out and try it again then. Not for that, no. But uh, when she came back from France that first time, we did go out and dive. Excellent. Uh, actually, go lake. Nice. So and we, and it was cheaper in this case for her to buy a suit than it was to rent everything. Funny how that can be sometimes. Well, they were on sale at Wolf, so we bought that, and it's like, got a couple of uses out of that, more than paid for it. And it's nice having your own suit. You can get comfortable with it. Well, and she grew up with it, or at least she drive, goes in the drive shop and she'll say, uh, the smells bring back my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, how's this for a turn of events? Tanzania has discovered a gas that all divers like, and it's not the, the methane post-dive, it's helium. Even though helium is considered to be the second most abundant element in the universe, and making up about 25% all mass, it's really rare here on the Earth. It's so light, it literally leaks off the planet. Uh, we've been running into helium shortages. Some years, it's been nearly impossible for dive shops to get helium once they run out. Helium's used in things such as magnetic resonance imaging, uh, different science applications, and probably the most important thing ever is breathing gas for Trimex. <laughs> so they're saying that they have found, were they, somewhere in this article they, they talked about how much they found down there. Now let me see if I can find it. They said they have found 54 billion cubic feet of helium. And this is just in one part of this one valley in Africa. So it's enough to fill 1.2 million MRI scanners. And they expect that they're going to find a lot more in this area, plus Africa, they said, has got to be loaded with it. So at one point in time, I think the U.S. had the, had the lion's share of the reserves for helium. And I think that was down like in Texas and stuff. Yeah. There was a lot of drilling. And then they tried to put it in empty caverns. Mm-hmm. But it does get out. Yeah, well, and I know that some of this fracking they've done had actually released more helium, but they didn't have the equipment on the wellheads to separate the helium out and store it. Yeah. Uh, so they were just bleeding it off in the atmosphere. And I think there was a little bit, I mean, if you, I, to, to play a little conspiracy theory, I think they were intentionally trying to create a shortage so it would get the price up to the point where it would make sense to store it. Because unless you had nearly free containers to put it in, uh, it just wasn't economical to do anything with. That's that's good. It sh- it shows that we do have some potential for more helium. And if nothing else, I'll keep the prices down. Yeah, for a while. So you have to. So they have that uh, transportation fee to have the helium moved from Africa to the Great Lakes. 
Now, this next spot, you know, we go down the Cooper River and we're looking for those teeth. Oh, yeah. Those teeth are kind of triangle-shaped, aren't they? Yes. Take a look at this next article and see what he's got. Yes, I see this. He he not only got some teeth, he got a jawbone. It's not the teeth we normally see. It is a giant fossil. It's uh, from a mastodon, uh, which I think the equivalent would be like a a woolly mammoth or something. Yeah. I would have kept that because I'd have realized what it was. That one I could have told. I, I could identify. There's a lot of times where we would have only that jaw piece. I've got I'm, the biggest one I found so far is the moose jaw, yeah. which was impressive by itself. If I'd have seen that, you bet your buttons I'd have kept that sucker. Yeah. Well, that could be a weapon too. You put that in a stick, you could smack somebody over the head with it. <laughs> so, Bill Ebertine, I will say that's what it is. Made discovery a lifetime in a muddy riverbed when he found the Macedon jaw. A professional diver, Ebertine, will include the find July 1 and 2 in a display of fossilized shark teeth that first Friday and Saturday on River Street. I've been diving coastal Georgia rivers for over 15 years for prehistoric shark teeth, but this is the first time I discovered a mastodon jaw. I was doing my normal dive when I felt what I thought to be a fossilized log, but when I felt the molars, I knew I had found something very rare. And you notice he said felt. Yes. Because he ain't got no visibility. Yeah, well, that's a, he's an old professional diver, so he he knew what he was doing. And, and he must be a lot like us. You know, if he's a pro out there, and then he's still doing it recreationally. Yeah. Okay, let's see. He's a former college instructor turned entrepreneur. He got hooked on diving 25 years ago, now spends his day diving Branching shark teeth, which can measure six inches long. It's dangerous work in muddy ro- uh, waters of coastal Georgia rivers. There's only zero to three inches visibility in the places he dives. Oh, so he's doing this professionally. So he's just collecting all these teeth and then selling it to the oh, tourist yeah. shops. Well, this goes to show, you know, the, you, you got to look to find, and he's putting an awful lot of time in. Well, he's solo diving, too. I like the part here. It says, when you learn to scuba dive, you always say dive with a buddy. Never dive in strong current to low vis. Never dive if you think dangerous animals are around, like alligators, sharks, stingrays. <laughs> all these things at once. So yeah. dive with a buddy, we'll just kick each other. Absolutely. <laughs> he's, he's right. You know, I think I'm, I'm okay because I haven't seen any of those things. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I don't realize how close some of those things have probably got to us in the river. And I don't know, was was uh, Captain Tom messing with us when he said get on the mud bank, pull off your flipper, and then you can hit the alligator with it? I don't think he was. Oh, Except, I ain't no way in hell am I going to stick in the mud because then I can't move. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're going to outswim him. No. He says, I set up a booth display, sell some fossils, I find scuba diving savannah, most are megalodon teeth. Both adults and children collect them. He goes on to explain what they are. Been diving since 1986. I like the part here. It says I've dove 200 spots off Savannah, and only found teeth at a dozen up to 20 sites. 
lots of hit and miss, and that's you know that's why people give up, but you you don't. And once you find a couple of good ones, you're hooked. Oh yeah, that's just like gold. Says I found woolly mammoth teeth, oh woolly rhinoceros teeth, camel teeth, vertebrae, rib bones. They're usually broken up. It's hard to tell where they are from, and we, I've got buckets and buckets of rib bones. Fossilized deer antlers, jaw bones. Takes ten thousand years for a bone to fossilize. I just look at some of the stuff on the shelf here, even left over, you know, the fossil ones we have. Mm-hmm. It's hard to believe that, you know, that was something that was alive that long ago, and you've got it on your shelf in here. Yeah, because you think it, it, the the way it shaped, it formed, a living creature made decisions and did things for that to happen. So you're thinking how unlikely it is for that creature to chew on something, scratch that tooth, and at that moment in time, that damage is going to be something that you can witness tens of thousands of years later. Yeah. I, I, mean, I just, just that Breaking open those fossils I got a couple of weeks ago. It's like, first time it's been seen in how many millions of years? Yeah, when's the last time I had light? Uh, there was an article, and I, I don't have it, but they were the amber, where they had the this tiny bird. Sex, yes. Well, these are birds that were the, they were around the time that dinosaurs were around, or they said in maybe even you know very early on, and they were about the size of the thumb, and they thought that these were hatched fully able, fully capable of of uh, feeding themselves, except for if you get caught in amber, but they had full feathers, and they could even see the color of the pattern on the feathers. You know, that guy's got a dry suit on, and I'm looking at his uh, glove on his left hand. looks like the rubber gloves you'd use for dishwashing. Grubbing gloves, grubbing gloves. Oh, it does? Yeah, he does have that. Yeah, he's he's doing this a little bit. Well, good for him. The only person better than him finding it is me. Or me. (laughs) And how about this in Canada? And I, I, I found four or five articles. It's all over the Internet. And it's a shipwreck that's found in Ontario. And I'm trying to figure out, is this the one they announced months ago, or is this a new one? Shipwreck of an 1868 schooner found in Lake Ontario. I'm trying to see the name of it. New York well, Shore. It's up there with the Hamilton and the Scrounge. They're just a short distance apart, and they were, they looked like this, totally intact. They figured, and this is before quaggas and zebras. I'd seen the pictures from National Geographic, that if you brought them up, they would sail. And the only one that had skeletons on it, plus cutlasses still in the sideboards of the rails. Yeah, I said uh, Jim Kennard, Roger Pulowski. Roland Stevens said they recently found the wreck of the Royal Albert in deep water off Fairhaven, 35 miles northwest of Syracuse. The Western New York-based team said the 104-foot vessel was carrying 285 tons of railroad iron that shifted in rough conditions, bursting the ship's seams. The crew survived the August 1868 sinking by getting into a small boat and making it to shore. The wreck was found in mid-June using side-scan sonar, Kennard said. 
Video images taken by a remotely operated vehicle helped identify the wreck as the Royal Albert, the only two-masted schooner to have known have sunk off Fairhaven. Uh, built in 1858 in Oakville, Ontario, the schooner departed Oswego on August 9, 1868, headed to Toledo, Ohio, on Lake Erie, via Canada's Welland Canal. Kennard said the Royal Albert was only a few miles into its westward voyage when lake conditions turned rough, caused the cargo to shift and break apart the hull. The crew barely had time to scramble the small bows as the ship sank. Video of the wreck shows the mast topped over. Some of the railroad rails can be seen in the aft hold. While discovery isn't significant, as some of the other team, this team has found, uh, they said the finding offers a glimpse of shipping methods and manifest in post-Civil War period. It's essentially typical of how goods are being shipped and the kind of goods that were being shipped. The heavier commodities couldn't be shipped through the canals on canal boats. I was looking at the picture of that windlass. It looks like ours. It does, which I think it's probably in the similar time period. Oh, it is. Ours were referring to be at least 1850, if not before that a little bit. Yeah. This shows you that if we could excavate under the windlass to the chain locker, it might be quite revealing of what we could identify. Yeah. Well, because depending on what the our wreck, the, and the wreck we're referring to is one we've nicknamed Max Wreck. Uh, depending on which wreck it is, it is rumored to have been lengthened and changed, and it would be exactly this time period. And the ship that was given a group that said they understood which they believe it is, the, they've changed their mind because they think they found that one elsewhere. Oh, <laughs> okay. Which I found very amusing. Is it? Oh, yeah, I I know, and I'm I'm trying to be nice, but yeah. it's 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 kind of, and I see this in all activities. Is people do work and they have stuff ready to go, and then when something sl- kind of matches it, it's like, oh, well, there my work's validated. And so it's a, it's your instinct to say, hey, I've got to match these things up. They're within the range. Why wouldn't they be? Yeah. But I like to find something a little bit more solid before. Uh, it gets identified or named. So, huh? That's interesting to see that what we they'd almost convinced us what it was might not be it. Yeah. I wish they'd have given us a depth there. I'm saying, especially because they did ROV and the quality of the video. I'm betting this has to be deeper than 300 feet or about 300 feet. I'm looking at a different one. I went, and they're showing different pictures of it, and it's it's down there a little bit. Yeah, because it, when it starts getting grainy like that, that just tells me that, uh, you know, for one thing, they've tried to correct it a lot to get the video enhanced. I'm trying to see if I can find another one. That's why I went through so many articles. Oh, I like this one. Oh, another one. picture. This is a nice picture here. Is this the U.S. So, News one? Which one are you looking at? Uh, I went to the R-C-I-E-N-T. Do I have that one? Oh, oh, yeah, I do that. Okay, it's the second one. And then the pictorial under it is the painted image. Mm -hmm. That's a nice shot. I like that. I mean, even though it's Uh, nice. Is that artist rendition? Yeah. 
but you're looking at the, the top one, which is the actual picture, and you start looking at the picture, and they did a nice job. Yeah, somebody somebody did a good job at it. Uh, that is Roland Stevens. Yeah, because that's the actor. Oh, yeah, Roland Stevens painted it. Now, is he one of the guys that we see at the dive shows who's got all the paintings? I'm not sure. Because it, it, it seems like there's been a few dive shows where somebody's done a lot of the more popular paintings in the Great Lakes. That, that is, they did a good job. Yeah, that's nice. Well, I wish I'd have said how deep, though. Yeah, right. if, if you look at this one in the U.S. News, uh-huh. it it's, must be a different frame capture. And I think this one's even a little clear. I went to it. I'll try. I went the first time. Yeah. It must be the aft end of it. Yeah, it's got to be the aft end, or if, uh, or maybe it's the bow. I'm not That's sure. The bow, you can see the windlass and mm-hmm. the bow coming off. And yes, you're right. There's the windlass. And that looks like a handle behind it for a bilge pump. Yep, that's a bilge pump there. I would love to dive on that. Well, a little bit deep, I'm willing so, to bet you. Yeah, 35 miles northwest of Syracuse. Yeah, if we looked at a depth chart, we'd have an idea. Well, that's a good find. This fun, this next one coming up is going to be interesting. I have a story about this. Yeah, this is that. Uh, I, I need almost theme music for this part. Uh, mysterious giant pyramid spotted on the ocean floor. Alien hunters who have claimed to have spotted the crack and now say they've also seen ancient UFO based on Google Earth. Eight point five miles across its base should be not hard to find. No, it's a and perfect pyramid. It's like, excuse me, you ought to be able to go find that sucker. They're saying it could be eleven miles across. Massive structure, maybe hard to make out. It looks like a blur on the screen, but if you envision a pyramid and squint when looking at it the right way, it does appear right in front of your eyes. I'm trying to squint. I'm not seeing it. So that's what they got it from, was that Google Earth image? That's what they say. A lot of them have been oh. doing that for shallow water wrecks, you notice. If they hadn't have outlined it in yellow, you might have seen something. Did you click on it and blow it up? Oh, no, I haven't. Can you click, click on it? blow it up. And try and... I, I, if they hadn't have put it in yellow, you might have seen something. I'm trying to... How do you... I, I can't... Do I have to go to the Google? Where do I go? Do no, I, I just went right on the site. The same thing. Click no. on the center of it. I'm clicking. It doesn't do anything for me. You left click and it didn't? No, no, doesn't do anything. Wow, it just expanded mine up to 200 and some percent. No, no. Yeah. But I'm curious. It says one of four. Where's the other three? Oh, I can't tell you that. Now, the image down below, they do have one where they didn't put, the, put it on. And... I mean, you can see the shape. Actually, I think it's a jet fighter. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, that almost looks like it's a delta wing. Definitely a fighter. It looks like a there. Yeah, how big is it, though? Yeah, well, I think it's the same one as the one up above. They just didn't draw the stuff around it. 
Yeah, but if it's 11 miles, it ain't no fire. I think what we're going to find is that this is a light artifact caused by the angle of the sun refracting in the water. At how deep? Well, just you're just you're looking at color shadings. I don't. Um, I mean it's it's easy enough to go find out, get some money, go get a boat, go look down. Yeah. Said even if this is not a UFO that landed in the ocean, it was being used as an alien base. It's still a monumental discovery. An eight and a half mile pyramid, the biggest in the world has ever known. Does Google Earth maybe the the new go to source to find evidence of alien life once on Earth? Oh, I went down to the bottom. I'm looking at all these other pictures of it. The one with the light emitting from it. First to lay eyes on a mysterious underwater structure was discovered last month. Claims to have spotted a beam of light shining from the darkness of the Pacific Ocean. Well, that's its reactor just cooling down. You know, it had a breach. That's why it landed there. And then they got a picture of a Kraken if you want to see it. As much as, you know, we look at patterns on our side scans, after a while, you can see whatever you want to see. <laughs> I mean, does it not look like a dragon's head? And you can actually make a dragon's head out of it. You get down there and it's just a weird formation on the bottom created by currents. But it is, it's always nice to think of what it could be and until you go down and, and find out it isn't, it is. But this yeah. is sort of funny you bring that up today, though. What's that? I walked into Wolf's. Uh-oh. And the first thing, a gentleman who works there uh, came by and said, Hey, have you ever heard about the pyramid found there in Lake Michigan? It's like, no. Well, they were out there fishing, using their sight scan, and they came across this one. Of course, my next question is, did they hit the man overboard button so we can find it again? He says, no, but uh, they did do a recording of the, of the, you know, where they were at. And I said, well, did you dive it? Well, no. I said, how deep is it? About 55 feet. It's like, excuse me? What? You want to give me those coordinates? I'll tell you what it is. And I already, I already got to have an idea what it is. Have you ever seen a pyramid anchor? Yeah. All right. This is one that's about five feet tall. <laughs> but I've never seen a five foot tall one. No, I haven't either. I would die that in a heartbeat. So I said, give me the coordinates. We'll go out there and find out about this well, one. A pyramid anchor, uh, you could use that. If you were doing a dredging operation, wouldn't you use that maybe as an anchor? That's right. I'd use something really heavy so I can anchor something to it. But generally, you get it back because if oh, yeah. that, that's expensive. Yeah. Yeah, you don't care. Yeah, because usually it'd be a barge. You know, if there was a military operation where you were doing some sort of heavy construction mooring, um, you would get it back. Yeah, and this is up towards South Haven, so I'm hoping maybe to get some more feedback on that because that'd be worth the trip just to. Yeah, it'd be nice just to verify it. Yeah, and if it was an anchor and just lead, I'll bring that damn thing up. Five foot piece of lead—that's going to be a couple of pounds. And a couple of pounds is a couple of dollars. Be too much hope for it, it would be lead. 
Did I lose you? No, I'm still here. I'm oh, just I was I was just daydreaming on it. Really quiet there for a second. Yeah. Well, that does it for scuba news. We did have a couple of uh, potentially new scuba gear. One is a video, and this is a uh, one we do have. I have to thank uh, uh, Jim Billings for doing the show notes for last week's show on the website. So if you go to scubaobsessed.com, you see the show notes and the links. So I expect that he'll do it again this week. So thank you very much for doing that. Uh, and we will put this next link, which is a YouTube video, and it's showing the Dave, which I'm I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it's an underwater autonomous. I don't know if you, if it's autonomous, can you call it an ROV? Because it's not remotely operated at that point. Is that an underwater drone at that point? No, no drone. You're still driving. Autonomous vehicle, underwater vehicle, AUV. Yeah. But what they're they're talking about, and and it was it's an interesting video, uh, probably a little bit of uh, sales job to to get people to be involved. In, not a commercial product yet, but they've got one they're working on. And unlike other ROVs, it has no camera system. Instead, they're going strictly on underwater sonar, saying that part of the technique in their ROV is to be able to get uh, better use of the batteries. So they say that sonar is much more efficient, and it's they've got it to the resolution where it's almost like seeing. Yeah, I'm looking at the pictures of a of a pretty nice. You're talking some substantial funding. Yes, they're they're expecting mm, government organizations and pipelines are going to be the primary market for this device. And then Gizmag has a. Uh, Underwater exploration craft nearing production. And I think this is going to cost a few shekels. Whatever it's going to be. I'm just looking at the pictorial and it's already way past my budget. Yeah, just the styling of it. Yeah, because they're using that modern synthetic decking. Yeah. It started to become popular. And that decking's probably $50,000. So it is the platypus, which I think we've probably covered before. The plans were designed in 2011, following a working prototype. Two years later, production time freight was set for 2014. As with all things, it took a little bit longer than that to get it going. It's a catamaran, so each pontoon has electric motor at the back and a lithium polymer battery to power banks for speeds up to 10 to 12 knots. An eight-hour range central pod can be lowered to one and a half meters beneath the water by electric powered pivoting arms. It's a lot of money for something I don't think I would use. I don't see the usefulness of it. Do you? I mean, it'd be fun to drive and ride. Yeah, I, I agree. I Well, I'm looking at the picture of the guy on it, and he doesn't have a windscreen for number one, so he's not going to be able to go that 12 knots or whatever they say. Oh, said. no, not when you're down. No, I think that, I, and I don't think you're going to get 12 knots with that down. I think that 12 knots is for you motoring out to something. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, yeah, $445,000. 
for that thing? Well, I said, uh, brings us up to the present. The whole project thus far is eating up some half million dollars, a quarter of that for the patent alone. Uh, I don't know. What, what are you patenting, though? What's you need? I, I don't know. I think the danger when you have something is like this, unless you have something that's truly unique, anybody who you'd want to sue to not copy you probably has a patent portfolio ten times what you're doing. I can't, like you said, I can't see what's really patentable about it. Yeah, I don't need I'm looking Dragging at Dragging somebody in the water underneath. That's really all it looks like. It's a pontoon boat with a center section that drops somebody down who's, you know, two guys would ride it like a motorcycle. Yeah. You know, it's, I don't know. I, I, I think I've seen, as we've covered many of these type of vehicles on the show, I've, I've seen stuff that just looks a whole lot better. So who's the market for this? Is this divers? Well, four kilowatt torpedo motors, torpedo motors. I mean, a 10 kilowatt motor like that's going to run a couple of bucks. Not to mention the batteries. I don't know. I mean, maybe if you were taking non-divers, so you do this as like a hooker rig. So okay. somebody just kind of goes down, and then you could, like, have them skim over the top of a reef? Yeah, it must be something like that. It says potential customers, all of them, diving centers, resorts, premium markets, said that only two people on a boat that's going to cost eighty to 100,000 pounds is going to be a bit too limited, just like we're saying. Yeah, somebody, uh, the, the writer of the article said it's a cool ride for beginners, but what about for seasoned divers? Yeah. And I have to agree. I don't. I don't see it any market for up here in the Great Lakes. No. I mean, you'd just be. If you had good viz, you'd just be skimming along in water. Yeah, they're using an integrated electric hookah air compressor system. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not carrying tanks. That's why the guy had hoses on them. Yeah. But that you've already got that existing. I don't know. Yeah, it said final pricing sixty to sixty-seven thousand pounds for the base model. One hundred sixty-seven thousand for the bells and whistles range. Yeah, but if they want somebody like us to try it out, hey, yeah, we give it a try. I mean, you convince us. We're not against looking. Well, yeah, try it. You'll like it. Maybe that'll be us. Well, I want to get down a little deeper than, like, seven feet. Did you go to the galleries? I just went to that at the bottom. Uh, yeah, here we Pictures. Let's see, I click on the gallery button and see what it shows yeah. me. Bottom. The one picture I see of a diver down below is definitely a warm water diver. <laughs> And I'm not totally impressed. Yeah, you got somebody in a shorty. Yeah, you got yeah three mil shorties on. They do have cowlings around the the blades on the outboard. I guess that's better than nothing, considering you're going to have divers in the water. That would be cool if you fell off. Oh yeah, there's there's another one. They showed the guy underwater, and you're right. He's I don't know if he's wearing a wetsuit. Looks like he's more just. Under Armour. 
Oh, I see who it is. The one guy has more hair. I think they got people changing shirts. Huh. But we'd be willing to go to wherever you're at and uh, try this out for you. Yeah. Yeah, I, it, it's definitely a warm water resort type of idea. Cool. Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. Uh, well, if you're going to spend money on that, by the way, there's another item you can buy me instead. It's called David or David uh-huh. Divers Augmented Vision Display. The translucent heads-up display built into a diving helmet. Now, that could come in handy. Yeah. Well, I liked the idea early on when I was first getting into diving. Uh, and I, right before I bought a dive computer, they had the heads-up dive computer. And that was very attractive, but I just the, the premium for it. When I was working for a company in between nuclear jobs, I designed a helmet that had a video system in it with the, the small cameras in the old days, you know, like the one-inch screens. Yeah. And it was mounted above so the diver could shift his eyes up. And it had, basically, I had a center on the helmet that went forward, would give you echo ranging, and give you how far the object or an object in front of you is. And that would read off and beat. The second one was a black and white camera input to a screen because the black and white you can see with the camera better than you could with the naked eye. Oh, yeah. The other one was uh, infrared for heat signature. So if you went down and you're working on like a, a Christmas tree or a wellhead and it was hotter, you'd see the thermograph. So with the three combined, even in zero vis, you could do a lot more work and, and find items easier. The only reason we didn't patent it is because it was unique and there was no profit in it for the company to patent it. Yeah. So we didn't. Yeah, it, it, it's probably about a hundred grand at least to patent anything anymore. Yeah. If you and know all the, if you know all the electronics tr- nowadays, you can do that. Almost yourself. You can if you can do all if you get all the paperwork together and and do it, and you take the time. But there is something about a good patent attorney that he can tell you the ins and outs, and you know, he can look at it because if if you don't have somebody who vets that for you, you can go all the way through the process just to have them go, and eh, you didn't cross this I or dot that, or the dot that I or cross this T. Yeah. You got to go back to the drawing board, and they can help you know gauge it. How do you make it not too broad but not too narrow? Yeah. Or maybe you need to do three or four patents out of your one idea. Well, like this, there's really nothing totally new. It's basically taking somebody else's technology and adapting it to a use that hadn't been used in. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, so I understand that you've got some dives in. Uh-huh. 
Well, today was Thursday, Thursday, of course. So we did dive. We dove Lake Cora again, uh, trying to relocate a boat that was identified by a uh, diving instructor earlier that, uh, that had a motor on it. And it's unusual to find a nice boat with a motor on it unless it was uh, borrowed and sunk. Oh. <laughs> or if it were stolen and sunk and somebody was joyriding and sunk it. But you don't normally leave one in relatively shallow water if you got a motor on it. Mm-hmm. And it was still floating. So we went out looking for that. We did not find it. Oh. But the thermocline is at about 16 feet and it dropped down to about 52. Well, I mean, it's not of... bad for wetsuit if you got your gloves and hood on. Right. But some people find 52 to be chilly. Yeah, well, it's good to get some practice in. We got to get these guys toughened up for it. So, because we're, <laughs> you know, heck, it, it's almost the end of June. So oh. we're just like a couple weeks from October. And we're talking river next week, probably. River, really? Yes, sir. Uh, which way? Well, I. Not sure yet. Uh, okay. If, if we have uh, somebody with a boat, that would be fine. But I'm not sure a lot of us are ready to traverse it from one point to the other without mm-hmm. the aid of the boat. Because last week the current was pretty, still pretty fast. So getting over would be a chore. Coming home is going to be a pain in the ass. I, w- I would like to have a boat just so I can haul up a bunch of crap and do it quicker than like- I like a boat because it's a good, nice safety feature. Yeah. Have somebody up there who doesn't mind in keeping an eye on us. That's, I love that part. Yeah. Hmm. So if anybody wants to be a boat sitter, yeah. uh, we buy your, your, we'll buy your, your supper or lunch for you. Yeah. Yeah, well, let me know when, what you decide. So uh, Lake Cora was not too bad. What was the surface temperature? Uh, surface with kids are out there. People were in their bikinis, so we had more people playing around than diving. We only had four divers today. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was nice and shallow. It was under 15. Didn't need gloves. Didn't need hood. Go below 15. You wanted your glove. You wanted your hood. Yeah. So we just refound the toilet. Uh, refound another big boat. So I got videos of all the major items you see when you get out there real quick. And the buoy we placed on it last week was still there. So if you're on shore and you look out and you see this one-gallon jug floating around out there, go to that one first. That's the boat. A lot more weeds uh, this time of year than normal, too. Is it more weeds than normal? Yeah. A lot of the toilets, I mean, the weeds are growing up around it, and you'll miss it if you're not really looking for it. And the catfish down there on a couple of those boats are rather large. Mr. Curtis came back and said, I heard you guys talk about catfish last week. You didn't tell me they were that big, and that many of them. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the uh, photos that you posted on June 27th. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, what is that? Is that just uh, there's a pipe head with chain on it? Yeah, if you go down there, you're going to find looks like a lot of um, sprinkler system pipe, you know, like they do in the fields, that circular one. Yeah. 
just like that, laying all over the place. And if you follow it around at that juncture, as you'll have a piece of pipe, if you follow that pipe and look to peripheral side, you'll pass near the one boat. And then you'll actually go by the trampoline because it, it impacts the trampoline. And then it goes me wandering all around the, out in the deep part. Now, is that pipe, would that be fire department pipe that they laid to to run to a hydrant maybe? Uh, no, because there, there's no input to it at the public access where they normally are. There's a pipe head that they take their suction on it. So I, I'm trying to remember if that pipe was there because it had to have been. I remember the okay. trampoline. Yeah. yeah, it's been there for a long time. I found another section of a different location. So unless that's somebody's uh, either sewer system pipe or intake pipe for their uh, gardening beach place, beach house. I don't know, but it was a lot deeper than you normally find that. Yeah, that seems a little overkill. You you only need to get about 10, 15 feet down. You don't need to be that far out. Right, and you go off the berm, and then you're you're starting to get in 25, 30 feet real quick. Yeah. I remember that, that Lake Cora having that real hard. It went from weeds and lit to dark, like right at a hard line. Well, when we were out today looking for that boat, you could put your hand in the bottom and it would disappear and you're not touching squat. Yeah. Yet you can be 60 feet away and you start seeing rocks and put your hand down and it's rocky, rocky bottom. Yeah, I'm glad you guys... July, can you believe that? It's almost July. It's happening. Yeah, tomorrow. Uh, I see that uh, there's some divers going to be heading to White Star. Oh, yeah. Uh, July 8th, 9th, and 10th, uh, John is going to be heading that way. Yep, we talked to him today while he went diving tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had planned on mowing the lawn tomorrow, but tomorrow night and getting some dives in. But uh, right now I'm hearing five-footers, so probably not going to be diving that one or scanning Wow. So we're going to take the fish out and play with that some more. Wow. But five foot's too much even for scanning mm-hmm. with a fish. Now, when you were up in the plain, did you happen to see any bodies of water that looked interesting? Uh, the other day, well, matter of fact, yesterday, you had some really nice, I, I, that same pattern, I'm finding a distinct pattern that goes from the start of Grand Mirror. Mm-hmm circles over and out and around the intakes and comes into Waco Beach. There is a pattern out there, and I have no clue what is creating that thermal pattern. When you so, say thermal pattern, you mean that there's like a, a, a thermal barrier in the water that's making a pattern? Well, the only thing I can think about is, yeah, because that would be the, the predominant pattern for the uh, heat coming out of the discharge. Right. It's right, but this this pattern that you're seeing all the time is five six times bigger than what you would associate with that with the cool with the uh, circulating system. Huh. So I don't know if there's a you know where the clay banks start the ones we found a couple of years ago. Yes. That's where that coloration starts. Could it be picking up something just dissolving clay from the clay banks? I don't know. What I need to do is go back out, find the clay banks, and then scan that edge and see if there's a drop-off that would account for that dip 
which would account for the coloration. Well, and you also mentioned that you had seen where there were fresh breaks in the clay where it had sheared. Yeah. So I wonder if that's somehow related. And that's north of the plant, so it's got nothing to do with the plant. Right, right. Yeah, you're getting into the air that uh, they were discussing a couple of years ago about the uh, pier mm-hmm. and the Corps of Engineers, that it was depleting the sand from downrange. Oh, yeah. And that's creating scouring on the bottom, which is taking away the sand, going into the overburden that's 10,000 years old. Yeah. So that would be interesting. So maybe getting out there and diving is going to be another thing we need to do. Start out in 20 feet. Yeah. Well, I still want to see some of these of these lake piers that are out there. Still plenty to see out in Lake Michigan. Oh, yes. Big time. Any more mowing the lawn recently, or has the weather not been holding up? Well, no, we mowed it last week, too. Oh, okay. So we, we've got some good experiences. It was a little choppy last week, windy. That's why we wound up doing night dive and then diving on the tunnels. I never had posted those pictures. No, I haven't seen them. No. Uh, other than that, it would be nice to find the coordinates for that pyramid anchor, if that's what it is. So we'll work on that. Uh, Clyde Kessler was up here last month. Oh, was he back up again? Yep, they were him and they were looking for uh, 2501, basically. Now is he with Wilbanks again, or? Yes, Wilbanks was up for a while. Oh, so so it was it was more just we'll pick a little bit better time of the year because you always seem to pick what has traditionally been a, an iffy time where you're going to have some storms. Well, you come up when there's no traffic either. And your visibility is better than before the, you know, the thermal takes effect and you get the upwellings. Well, that's good to see that he's able to get out. I I had heard rumors that he wasn't doing well. I had heard he had cancer, but I don't know if that's true or not. Well, and you can get over it. So if you don't tell anybody you got it, then you get it taken care of, you know, you you know, a lot of people are keep the health issues personal. So yeah, yeah. Well, if you like to follow us, you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed at scuba obsessed on Twitter. The website, which has been updated, at least one article, uh, www.scubaobsessed.com. And as I'm going through it, I see that I'm going to have to update some, add some photos to some items. Also, I've been doing some scoop it a little bit. So if you follow us on Twitter, you can get to scoop it that way. Uh, you can go down to the links. Uh, we have had a few people add themselves to our fan map. So if you go to scubaobsessed.com, scroll all the way down to the footer, you're going to see scuba obsessed fans in the links in the section that says about us. And that will take us to the fan map where you can go and put your pin in the map and let us know where you are and where you're listening. We like to have those pins as long also as well as five-star reviews. So go to iTunes, leave a five-star review. We also are on TalkShoe, TalkShoe show, show 73759. 
And then the Mug Club, which you hear us talking about, you can go to that website, which, Mac, I did. I'm getting closer. I, I'm, I'm in the middle of doing some updates, but I have been able to log in. Excellent. Uh, it was just something stupid on my side. I just must have had the wrong link or password or something. But I've been able to get in, and, uh, yeah, there's there's something with, with one of the theme updates that broke the website. So the menus are a little funky. Just got to scroll down to the rest of it and see what's going on. Yeah, I have not updated it since February myself. Yeah, I've got to get back. I've it's I I may have to turn the theme off, blow it away, put it back on, and then set it up. The I'm just dreading it because of uh, the number of menus we've we got so much content on that website. Yeah, that the the menus it took. I spent I've spent days on getting those menus set up. In fact, those menus aren't just one big menu. It's like five menus because <laughs> I reached the limit of what the server can serve for a menu. Uh, and I have a feeling that's part of the problem again is that it just uh, was too much broke it. So I, but I, I'm farther along. Man, that might be a project for tomorrow. Well, like you say, save what you can. So try yeah. not to not lose stuff anyway. Yeah, I just try not to lose time. We won't lose any content. The content will all be there. Just the the format and structure of it. I may have to spend time tweaking again. I really like that framework I was using too, but. Uh, sometimes things don't go as you hope. Yeah. Well, you got anything you want to plug before we get going? I just got to get you back in the water. Oh, I do. Yeah, I, I agree. I have to clear it with the wife. She's going out of town this weekend, so I might. Is there any diving going on Saturday? Uh, I'm going to have to um, order fleets having a fly-in on Saturday and Sunday. They have a steak well, on Saturday starts at 11 o'clock. So mm-hmm. if you're local and you want a very good steak, go to Waterbleed Airport uh, for a steak day. And then uh, they're having a fly-in again on Sunday at the pancake breakfast. Okay. Well, and there's a lot of that going on. I think I've seen four or five pancake breakfasts for Sunday. Oh, yes. If you had been in the area and went to South Bend Airport this week, Mm-hmm. You'd have a rare treat. They had the air power exhibit. They had uh, one of the few, I think there's only two actually flying B-29s. Uh, it was out there. They had two B-17s, B-25. Oh. Um, I think it was a C-45. Mustang. A lot of warbirds, and they were all available to be flown in. You know, I'm not a big one on bucket lists. Because I I think if you know why wait to have a bucket list to do stuff just do it, but I do need to make a list of things I want to see just so I can remember them, <laughs> and and seeing some of those planes up close because I've I've a lot of this I remember from my youth when my dad was in the navy, yeah. But I haven't seen them recently, so I'd like to go back and see what's the difference between my memory as a kid and what it's really like now. It would be great if I had I don't have any kids or small kids or grandkids, but my nephews and stuff, I've taken to weird things like we went to uh, Oshkosh last year mm-hmm. and the B-29 was there. And I like to get pictures with them with different airplanes because when they're 50 years old, this oh, yeah. stuff is going to be ancient and they're going to say, well, I saw that when I was a kid. Well, and they, this stuff can't fly forever. No. Uh, kind, of, kind of on a related subject, did you see the fire that happened in Bering Springs probably two or three weeks ago? 
there was a farm. There's a a farm building burned up forty tractors. Oh, really? And some of the vehicles that were in the barn is that a uh, couple of the World War II ducks. Oh my god! The one that you see at the fair all the time. Yeah. And at the lest we forget. Yeah. Poof! Burned up. I'll be darned. Yeah, he was, uh, and he and he's kicking himself for it. He the the owner of the building and the tractors. Um, he had spilled some oil on the ground, just a dirt floor, I, from what I understand. And uh, he was cutting, doing some welding or cutting, and a spark cut onto it. He he thought that the oil had long absorbed and been gone, and it it hadn't been, and it flashed. And uh, by the time he realized how bad it was, it was too late. He was able to get a few tractors out, but yeah, they lost them all. So that two-cylinder club at the fair is going to be a little bit lean this year. Wow. Because he had a lot of them. I know that if you get a chance, go to the Heston Museum. Yes. Virgil Port. Yes. Yeah, my, my, my Actually, this weekend. Yep, you got the Heston. Uh, the fourth is, a, is one of their big weekends. They, they do stuff a lot. Uh, they have a family day. They have the 4th of July. They have the Labor Day meet. Is If you can only do one time, that's the time to come. Uh, that's when they have the most machines running. But you can usually find my mom and my mom and mom and or dad out there working on stuff. Yeah, the, the stuff's not going to run forever. So people got to put money into it. There's got to be interest. So take a look at it while you can. Yeah. Well, I think we are to that time of the show. All right. Let me see if there's anybody in the chat room I've been ignoring. Oh my gosh, there is. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's it's like uh if if there's nobody in when I get started, and we started pretty on time late as we would yeah. like to call well, Flyboy it. Flyboy should be there. Flyboy is there. He's listening. He's streaming. We had new creation. I'm not sure who uh, that might be a new one or somebody who we haven't seen in quite a while. St. Louis Sam. I look like he was in there for for a little bit. And once again, we'd like to thank Jim Billings for doing the show notes on the website. So you should see a little bit more activity on there. And we've got some other things coming up. Uh, so are you ready? Yes, sir. I was ready. So here we go. A scuba diving research group on sea mammals captures a rather odd dolphin in one of its trips. Its particularity was that it had feet. After they had photographed and measured the poor thing, they prepared to set it free. Wait a minute, says one of the researchers. Wouldn't it be kindness of our ship's doctor to amputate the feet so it would be like all the other dolphins? Not on your life, exclaimed the doctor. That would be defeating the porpoise. <laughs> At least it's not bad, bad. <laughs> yeah, it's not that not. not horrendous. But no, that's, that's almost a cute bad. That's almost a cute bad. So on that note, go out there and get what? And stay safe. 
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.